taste that. It's a long time since I tasted anything. You promised me an explanation. This is it. Let me no, see. No, don't touch it. It's dangerous. It opens doors. What kind of doors? I'm Margot Mutter. I'm Beth Hill. And I'm Valentine M. Smith. And, and we're, we're out to, to get, get you. We're gonna get you. <laughs> we're gonna fucking get you. <laughs> Watch out, bitch. <laughs> I love this energy. Oh. You know what? We can do a silly one. Yeah. We can do a silly one. <laughs> yeah! We're gonna do a silly one. We're gonna do a silly one. <laughs> That stays in the fucking episode. <laughs> That's the cold open. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Let's do a silly one. <laughs> hey, look, I, if I position that way, you can see you can see my little pinhead. Oh, you can see my little pinhead oh, with pinhead. all of the. Um, it's metallic. This cool artist named Evan did it when I met him. At Monster Mania, like, oh, God, so many years ago. We can't address time. Like, we cannot get into time. Great. Good. (laughs) Love it. Fuck time. (laughs) One of my friends thinks that if she could touch time, it would feel black and furry. And I have to tell everyone I know that because it's so horrendous and bizarre to me. I hate it. I wonder what the mouthfeel Mm. on time is. I feel like it'd be a little sticky. See, I was thinking gritty, but what if it's sticky and gritty? Oh. That's what I'm saying, is that, like, it's kind of like, you can touch it, but it kind of, like, it touches you back. (laughs) (laughs) Great start. Great start, everyone. Time touches you back. And look at this. Here we are. Together again for the first time. (laughs) Together again. Listeners, to set the stage, I'm your unreliable narrator. Bex here is a writer and bona fide academic in the field of fantasy literature, and we are plumbing the depths of queer text and horror. Along the way, we're going to be joined by people who love these movies, and we're going to talk about what they mean to them and why. And today, I'm pleased to welcome to the show writer and artist Valentine M. Smith, co-creator of Blade Maiden, Zoe Tunnell, which just wrapped up its second issue, Strays, which I have really been enjoying. Oh, good. Great. Strays is like my baby. (laughs) That's because it has mail. You can check them out on bladebaitens.com. It is a cool, just queer as fuck punk fantasy comic. I, I love the ending. I'm so happy Melody is staying with us. (laughs) <laughs> and by the time this releases, you should be on to the third issue, I believe, in April. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. We got three weeks of shorts coming up, and uh, but we're doing them full thing each week. So there'll be a full new little story each week, and then right into issue three. You know, we're just going to go ahead and get this out in the open. <laughs> this is take two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> So we recorded at the beginning of February, and in the midst of it, I got skinnamarinked a few times. 
We just decided to give ourselves a few weeks. And I'm just so grateful you came and joined us again. And you've chosen 1987's Hellraiser, Clive Barker's directorial debut, which is one that I'm really excited to get into. But before we do that, before we get into it, let's talk a little bit about you and your relationship with horror and just a little bit of your journey along the way. Sure. I mean, I don't know what y'all's journey is with it or anything, but mine, it is something that was introduced to me very young and then kind of fell away and then I came back into it and then I kind of really went hard. (laughs) When I think of the like two major things that I was really exposed to that kind of influenced me later on and especially with the work that I did am doing across the board artistically it was comic books and horror movies which is uh, a crossover for a lot of people i feel like that i've met they're like yeah i was definitely into those two things and now i'm fucking here wearing a leather jacket um what <laughs> <Pois> procession shot <laughs> Yeah, right. So like, um, I was always exposed to it. My dad was a big horror fan and everything. So um, a lot of the stuff that I had access to or knew about was because of things that either he was into or he watched or like had those like VHSs or DVDs in the house. So like it was accessible to me. For whatever reason, back when um, like video rental stores existed, um, like in your neighborhood and shit. There was one in front of where my house was. And I don't know who fucking chose this, but the kids movie section was like along the wall. And then if you like turned around, there was the horror section, like literally like front to back. (laughs) They're doing God. So like, (laughs) so like I like go in there to get my like fucking like Xena and Hercules animated movie. And I was absolutely, cause like the, fucking horror movie posters are so fucking good like all the time oh, yeah. um right so i'd peek around and like look at the like scary like horror movie posters i remember vividly the day i saw child's play too because i thought it was fucking incredible yes like with just chucky and the fucking like pop-up box and shit like that was i was like i need to know everything and i'm fucking terrified <laughs> Here, the kids nowadays still love chucky the amount of yeah. children I see, like, I'm going to buy this Chucky doll, and I'm like, more power to you, <laughs> child. You that? Could not be me, but I love that for you, I guess. I have other cursed objects, but not that cursed object. Okay. Absolutely the not. one that got me was Candyman 3, Day of the Dead. It was that yeah. the poster with the big mm-hmm. green eye and the bees all yeah. around it. I yeah. still yeah, haven't yeah. watched it to this day because that poster freaks mm-hmm. me out so much. And I think, too... The thing is, is that, like, I was, uh, I don't know if it's true of everybody, but I was so fucking scared of, like, most. Like, I was exposed to, like, B-horror comedies and things like that, but I was also exposed to, like, horror movies, and, like, I was fucking afraid of horror movies um, in a way that that almost, like, compelled me to witness them. You know what I mean? Right? You couldn't turn away. No. And how fucking cool is that? Like, literally, like, yeah, like, Child's Play 2, Candyman 3, like, these are things, these are movies that, like, do not get brought up when, like, discussing, like, horror movies that, like, fucking, like, changed the game or, like, did whatever. And it's, like, it it doesn't take something, like, really, uh, uh, that's fucking, like, profound or whatever. It's, like, something that struck you for some reason. And I think that 
has a factor in it too as to why I went into like visual arts because it was like this thing where it was like oh like this we can create feeling and emotion and power in a visual image that compels someone to feel something and isn't that fucking wild you know what I mean yeah and with horror it's the thing that you're not always sure that you should be feeling what you're feeling Mm. you know Mm. it's a genre Mm -hmm. that is one of the few places where you can kind of perform what is profane. And you're allowed to be messy. Yes. You're allowed to be complicated. And like in those like mixing emotions and like things can be a little bit terrible and horrible and sexy and like fucking like abysmal and ugh, yeah, it's good shit. So what was it about Hellraiser? Um, I fucking love Hellraiser um, from the minute <laughs> I watched it. And it was one of those that I didn't watch until later because in the line of movies on the fucking like wall, Hellraiser was the one that was like unopened um, because my dad was like, that one's it's real. It's real. It's real. It's that one's that one's a for that's that one's like next level. So I didn't watch it for a long time. I watched it when I was like 19 or 20. Um, and it was because I had a friend who I was like, I think I'm going to just like watch a bunch of horror movies and I'm like going to hit a bunch on the list that I haven't done. And so I was doing it like every night in university, um, like watching like two or three or whatever. And I got to Hellraiser and in like the first 10 minutes of Hellraiser, I'm like, this is the best shit I've ever seen in my fucking life. Holy shit. That core score kicks in and I was like fucking sold. Like it is from moment one. (laughs) And of course, I feel like for a lot of people who, uh, you know, how it was marketed and everything like that, it was like, it was sold to you on the basis of the Cenobites and Pinhead and like all of that stuff and like BDSM torture or whatever. And you go in to watch the movie and you're like, that's not, that's not what this is at all. This is a fucking fairy tale. This is a grim fairy tale. This is an evil stepmother tale. This is like fucking romance and gothic horror, like with BDSM Cenobites. It's just so good. It's so good. And I was like, y'all lied to me. And then there was a second one and I was like, oh my God. And then there was a third one. Yeah, Oof. exactly. It's so good. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> when Julia's out, I'm out. Mm-hmm. You know, honestly, we were lucky to get her for two. Uh, and it's only because, you know, much like Frank is a dual role with Oliver Smith as Frank the Monster, she's a dual role in Hellbound with Deborah Joel. I mean, Claire Higgins is not going to put herself yeah. in yeah. that horrific makeup. Yeah, because she was very much like, a, if you look at, all the interviews from you know that original time and the commentaries and stuff it's like she was like oh this is like a lot <laughs> for me you it's know? also the fact that like she watched the first 10 minutes of the film and then was like i have to go i hate this actually <laughs> yeah exactly i will i will never watch this film ever god bless goodbye <laughs> yeah she was like i'm out thanks thank you for the paycheck and i did some great work but i will never yeah. see it so see ya <laughs> it is what it is yeah yeah endlessly thankful that we got her for two desperately disappointed not in her but just in general that we didn't get her for more and that comes from like what was happening at the time right is like when you get to like 87 when this comes out and 86 when it's kind of being produced and stuff they're looking for that 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 tagline monster they're looking for that iconic look and like rightfully so like the Cenobites especially and the high priest that is Pinhead um is that fucking look like you see a guy with pins in the head and you're gonna be like yeah I want to fucking what's what's his deal (laughs) how'd we get here (laughs) what's going on they are just that repulsive glamour mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's fucking incredible, rightfully so. And it's an, a, a definitely like an element of the story, and it wouldn't be the same if it was anything else. But like, it's it's a Julia Cotton, Kirsty like fucking like dynamic, and you know, in the first one with Frank and Larry, and you know, all those finely dynamics interacting with one another is what makes that fucking film. The first two movies, almost inarguably, are about the rise and fall of Julia Cotton. It's one of those movies where you can mine deeper and deeper into it if you want, which is something I always Yeah, love. yeah. I totally agree with that, that Hellraiser is a film that, like, you, you, take, you take away what you put into it. Yeah. Like, you can just take it as a, like, cautionary tale of don't fuck with shit you shouldn't be fucking with. Or you can go into the fact that it is a domestic family story. It is a deep romance. It is, like, all of these things of is there a yearning deep inside of you that once it is awakened, you cannot put back in the box? And what does that mean? And how does that change you? You know? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's the story yeah. of picking up cursed items and insecure attachment signs. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's like almost soap opera yeah. level of, and I was having an affair. Yeah. And it's like, great, let's yeah. go. Yeah. Julia Cotton is that meme that's like, can't mansplain, manipulate male wife or way out of this one, boys? Manslaughter it. <laughs> <laughs> I will girl boss gatekeep myself. <laughs> yeah. If we support women wrongs. Fucking incredible. I love that bitch. God damn. All right. Listen, she's trying to save his life. She's trying to, like, help him regain the body he wants. Personally, I think she did nothing wrong. (laughs) Julia Cotton absolved of her crimes. (laughs) Yeah. Not a single thing wrong. Well, here's the thing. And that, you know, having, like, revisited it after, like, a little bit of time away and in multiple forms and stuff, Hellraiser is pretty much the story of her looking at you know she's looking at these photos of frank and like ladies she's like has this really good fuck session with frank clearly that she's never had sex like this before she takes the wrong thing away from that and that we you know evolve on in hellraiser 2 um is that she's like oh my god like i need that guy like that was the best shit i've ever had in my life oh my god you just realized you were a dom, ma'am. You were attached to the fact of, oh, I thought I was a sub my whole life. Turns out I'm a dom. And what I actually want is power and fucking shit like that. I don't need this guy. <laughs> and she doesn't know why. Well, she's She has lived, no idea. She's lived her whole <laughs> life just listening to what her parents think she should do and what her peers yes, think she should do. Yes, that's so good. Yeah, she's been and wearing a mask for this whole time and she didn't know she was yes, wearing one. She she's didn't masked. She had no idea. <laughs> but once you see that you're wearing a mask, that's when it starts to slip. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what we have here because she goes through this really visceral experience and then she just boxes it away. <laughs> She, she put it in a box and said, I'll deal with that later. <laughs> and then never dead. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's scary when you learn something new about yourself that you didn't, when you have to re-examine yourself like that, like in general with a lot of different things. And I think that's what happened to her is that, yeah, she was like, oh, oh, something's, something's, something's different here. And then like had to fucking put it aside for a minute. Like, honestly. <laughs> There's also just something so English about 
the sensibilities of oh that's a problem let's just put that away and never deal with that ever and it's like well no you probably should because otherwise people start skinning people and that's like a whole thing you have to deal with afterwards <laughs> now there are rats nailed to the walls because you didn't yeah deal with good it. job guys because you couldn't deal with your emotional you couldn't problems. talk about your shit <laughs> it's just a very british ah there's a stiff upper lip happening and no one needs to discuss this mm-hmm. and it's like well no, you probably should actually. Yeah. Men will literally wear their brother's skin to avoid going to therapy. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> like, what are you doing, man? So I guess we got to talk about it. The Hellbound Heart was developed alongside mm-hmm. the script for Hellraiser. The story is originally set in London in the Hellbound Heart, and in the movie, it's meant to be London. It's London, yeah. but it's New York. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah. So they're very much almost companion pieces. And and seeing the difference between the two and how that kind of makes up space of that story, I think is just really rewarding. Oh, love a non-Euclidean space. Yeah. And I feel like, oh my God, do you, uh, same visually, like with the, one of my other favorite things is the way they almost make it feel dreamlike in the deconstruction and construction of space like when the cenobites do appear and walls come apart and things that are there that shouldn't exist spatially do um and the way that they use lighting to come through like the slats of the walls and the way that Mm -hmm. plays upon things makes literal the liminal spaces that kirsty is Mm -hmm. navigating Mm -hmm. through the film because the whole Mm -hmm. film is about like the dissolution of the family unit she loses all of her family and all of her people and while she's doing that she's literally navigating through this haunted house yeah yeah which we've discussed before kind of how the house becomes a character in and of itself that they all have to grapple with and each time they come back they have parts in themselves that they have to kind of reevaluate because of the way that you feel when you go back to a place that you've been before. Mm-hmm. You remember the person you were when you were there and you remember, you know that the person that you are now and while you inhabit the same body, so much has changed and how do you reconcile that? It's strange as well because this idea of like localities and how that changes your mindset came up for me, God, was it this week? Time is fake, time is fake. We've just been over this. But very recently... Time is a mouthful. Um, Yes, very recently at the time of recording this I talked about this idea of returning to a place you grew up grew up in or that you were previously at for a very significant period of your time and how it almost forces mm-hmm. a regression. Mm-hmm. It came up in the context of talking about X-Men and Excalibur, but that's <laughs> <laughs> Is it? <laughs> I just recorded with, um, oh gosh, oh golly, oh wow, with uh, that lovely team and I was talking about Rain um, being back with Moira and how this idea of when you go back to like your childhood house even if you've moved away and you've been away for years and years and years you go back and suddenly you're fighting mm. with your parents like you're 40 again right and <laughs> it's like oh my god they won't get off my case and they're so suffocating and it's like I feel like a teenager again and it's part of that is because you're in a space where those feelings were so prevalent and those spaces hold mm. memories. Um, 
I've been thinking and your a lot. body remembers. Your yeah. body remembers even if you don't actually like at the forefront of your mind fucking everything. That bitch about keeps it. score. Yeah, that bitch keeps score. Sure <laughs> does. <laughs> sure does. Um, but all all of these like memories like living in you and in places and specifically in a house, I was thinking about this for a paper proposal I was writing, a whole a whole other thing. But it led me to read French philosophy, which I don't wish on many people. Condolences. <laughs> Thank you, I know. Um, but a really interesting book called The Poetics mm-hmm. of Space. Um, and in it, uh, the author Gaston Bachelard takes the house as a location for this sort of study of phenomenon of space remembering. And takes the house specifically because it is a space that is inherently very intimate mm. right like all of your your most personal memories tend to like live in a house of some kind and when you combine all of those memories it forces like a an existential transcendence if you want to be like philosophical about it which he is inclined to be <laughs> so here we are <laughs> but because it forces that it puts you in a space to look at who you are because you're your bare essence is held in those walls. Mm-hmm. And when you put that in the context of a haunted house, that can be real scary. Because it's your own essence is being turned against you when it's a house you live in. Oh, yeah. It's your memory, it's your bones, it's your structure, it's your foundation. Yeah. And and here it all comes back um, twisted and corrupted. And in some cases, more truthful and that can be very very scary yeah like a fun house mirror versions of yourself and fucking grappling with mm-hmm. that and then it's like which one of you is the 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 protagonist which one of you is the hero which one of you is the villain are they all the villain are they all the hero what mm-hmm. is, what does that mean and how do you fucking live with that <laughs> <Hell reason. And laughs> not even not even like which one of you yeah. is the hero and which one of you is the villain and which one of you is the real you which one of you do you like the best? <laughs> God, I need to go. <laughs> I need to fucking leave. <laughs> we did find out Julia's answer. But, like, that's why Julia's story is scary. Because it's like, oh, you're confronted with your, your darkest shadow self. And suddenly you prefer it. And it's like, yeah. well, well, what do I do with oh, that? Yeah, what do you do with that when you, oof, when you like the evil one? So they come back to Julia's home turf. Larry thinks that he might be able to reconcile their marriage. Larry is Andrew Robinson's character. Oh, Andrew Rob. Oh, what about He describes Clive Barker as a demented choir boy yes. who could charm birds out of trees. Yeah, and you're like, who says that? That's fucking amazing. So good. <laughs> oh, Andrew Robinson has my heart solely for the fact that he does all of that and then also, like, sit on a con stage and read fan fiction that people have written and be like you're correct actually I played this character and I think you're right <laughs> I'm like excellent Olaria is truly just a guy like that is the strongest thing I have to say about him he's just a guy he's just a boring fella he's a boring stable fella I feel like it's <laughs> wife guy derogatory like, <laughs> 
he he would work for anyone else, but not for Julia. Like he no, like Julia, Julia doesn't want that. Julia looks at him and thinks like that's what I'm supposed to want is this guy who has a stable career and he has like things that could be good for me and there's a family and I'm, he's a nice guy. <laughs> And I am so, so bored. So devoted to her and like so into her and she's not into it. She, she's like, (laughs) she doesn't like guys who are into her. (laughs) Let's be fucking real. She's like, I want the dude who like doesn't want a thing to do with me. I don't want this guy. I want the guy who treats me like absolute garbage. (laughs) Exactly. Larry brings Julia back to her home turf. They move into the family house, but upstairs... Russ brother Frank in the walls and Frank is her former lover Larry's brother <laughs> yeah he's fucking he's fucking weird <laughs> like I would absolutely fight this man in single combat <laughs> but put him on a TV screen and yeah. I'm sold immediately yeah. like it is what it's it a is. really good character it's not Julia's fault that she can't think about yeah. herself rationally <laughs> ever Cotton, once again absolved <laughs> So he shows up to go to the wedding, Frank. In the actual script, it's like, hey, I just came in for the wedding. It's the day before. He's like, hey, have fun. Take care of each other. And they're like, oh, we will. And then they fuck. (laughs) And then they fuck on the wedding dress. Like, period. (laughs) And he's like, nothing definitely happened. And meanwhile, they're like, fucking like, baby, why is your fucking bra like split in two? You know what I mean? Uh, Like, (laughs) Oh, yeah. The flip. What occurred here? (laughs) Yeah, but it in theory it happens like the day before or like right before they're about to get married. So she's wearing she's wearing a fucked wedding dress when she gets married to Larry. <laughs> Honestly, amateur error. <laughs> For the record. <laughs> I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's good. I am mm-hmm. saying it's very funny of her. <laughs> So the main thrust of the movie, you know, they move back in to Larry and Frank's childhood home. And very shortly after, Julia discovers that Frank is still alive inside the walls of the home. Not like he's living in the crawl space, but he's a... Well. This is where we have to talk about the Cenobites. We have to talk about oh, the lament no. configuration before it gets an hour. <laughs> what we a have shame. to talk about the Cenobites. <laughs> Well, you know, the thing is, is like, I find the real meat of the story to be about the cottons, right? Like, that's, like, where it hits for me. Well, and for the movie, too. Because, I mean, like, uh, the the Pinhead and Co. do not fucking appear. Like, they appear briefly in the kind of intro coming along when we touch base with Frank and, you know, we see the puzzle box for the first time and everything. But then we don't see them for till the, the, the second third of the movie, until things really start to pop right. up. Right, they only probably yeah. have 10 and minutes. 15 minutes mm-hmm. total, probably. Like, through the whole fucking film. Um, which is wild. <laughs> it is wild. They're the visual branding that hooks you in, and then you get there, and you realize that it's a regular lady. That's <laughs> <laughs> how they get you. It's about generational yeah. trauma yeah. and... Haunted houses. Yeah, love it. Love to see it. So good. Such a good fucking So the Lament configuration is a puzzle box that is also a gateway that opens doors to the pleasures of heaven and hell. And the Cenobites, who are the high priests, the theologians of pain, and some 
damn fine dressers. <laughs> They've got an aesthetic and they <laughs> fucking swung hard and it landed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They know what they're about. Is anyone else going to be brave enough to say it? The Cenobites are hot. It is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bex, will you do me a favor and rank the Cenobites at level of hotness for me right now? <laughs> no. <laughs> Absolutely. You think no? I'm going to expose myself like that in public? No. <laughs> anyway, Deep Throat's the hottest. Deep <laughs> You know, I knew the answer. But, but also, you know, Jamie Clayton Pinhead is, is up there. Jamie Clayton Pinhead, are you fucking kidding me? Fucking incredible. I remember um, seeing Chatterer for the first time and the, the, the acoustics that went along and just the idea of, like, literal chattering teeth coming out was fucking terrifying. Oh, yeah, horrifying. And there's, like, <laughs> like, just giving them this statue-esque terrifying presence of you don't know what's gonna happen next because they're not telling mm-hmm. you that's fucking terrifying and chatterer when he first appears and like goes up to kirsty and sticks the fingers in the mouth like holds her yeah to, while they're having a fucking conversation doesn't do anything else but just fucking holds her in that invasion of space yeah I think there's a reason that they stick out so much and there's a reason why people attach to them visually because I can't think of a place where that really happened before on a mainstream scale, you know, with those monsters in that way. And the fact that they are, you know, quote unquote monsters, but they don't see themselves that way. They are fucking demons, but they're also saints. It's all how you perceive them and the conversation of angels and the conversations of pleasure and pain and all these things being dual sides of coins and how does that interact and what does that look like and what's the same for you might not be same for someone else and clearly they've ascended to a different plane because they're existing there in front of you and yet their skin is peeled back. And there's just something very neat to me about the Cenobites being the bats in the belfry. That they are existing... Mm -hmm. And they are causing this gloom to hang over 55 Ludovico. But you can't really ever catch Mm -hmm. them. Yeah. But they're there and you can feel them. And you can feel them in the bells. And you can feel them in the rustling of chains. And you can feel them in, in, in the way that, like, if a wind passes through an old house and the way that the boards, like, move like you can you you know that they're there and you get Mm -hmm. that presence so they don't need to physically be there in order for you to be haunted right and there's this implication that all of the victims of the cenobites are still resting wherever they were picked up by them so that there might be someone in the walls or under the floorboard or behind the freezer and they're Mm -hmm. still waiting in that super reality that's imposed over ours yeah, the timeless space of existence. Yeah. Just waiting to come back. Yeah. Which, for me, does what really good horror always does, and that is it localizes it, right? A lot of the time, horror becomes... It can be very problematic in that it's always going to be used as a, a tool to magnify fear of mm-hmm. other cultures or <laughs> other people, people who live differently than you, etc., etc., but it also has this idea, right, that the monster is in the house. The monster is your next door neighbor. The monster is under your bed when you go to sleep. It is there. And you might not know it all the time, but it's going to live in that space. And 
I think Hellraiser does that so well, like you say, because it has this sort of, this feeling of dread, right? Like, have you ever walked into a room where the people who are in it have just had an argument? Mm-hmm. And you were not part of it, but suddenly the whole room is heavy with it, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, I don't know what's happening here, but I hate the vibe. It's absolutely rancid. Mm-hmm. The whole house feels like that, right? Yeah. And I think it also creates like a, it's not a bottle episode, but it almost is because the house becomes a pressure cooker, right? Of mm-hmm. these vibes are getting increasingly worse and things yeah. keep happening. And even the people who don't know about it are living under the weight of it and that yeah and feeding it literally feeding it (laughs) literally metaphorically feeding it when we take julia's first scene in the attic she goes Mm -hmm. up to remember frank with those pictures kirsty breaks the faucet Mm -hmm. and all the water begins to shoot out and then somewhere else Mm -hmm. up in the house memories of rain falling begin and she begins to remember her time with frank yeah, there's it's like a self-feeding loop of fear, right? Um, Kirsty breaks the faucet, the memories start. That triggers a whole loop of events that culminate in Kirsty having to face the Cenobites. But that all started because this loop began, and then everyone who's involved started to contribute to it in some shape or form. Whether they did it knowingly, like Julia did, or whether they did it unknowingly through actions like Larry did. Larry starts to get frustrated. He shows anger. You wonder how much of that is you're living in a literal pressure cooker happening, right? It's like, uh, this sucks and the vibes are bad and now I'm mad because <laughs> the vibes are bad and I don't like it and I want to go home and I know I am home but I want to go home yeah. home. Yeah. The engineer. We haven't talked about the engineer. Much different from the engineer in the books. <laughs> so you know, the weird. engineer in the book uh, was a being of like light and colour but... In the movie, he is this, like, worm-like creature that is designed to live in the labyrinth and is being pushed by, like, seven effects guys crawling on the walls to chase Kirstie down. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They did what they could. (laughs) So good. Yeah, no, it's fucking good. And in the same way that, like, I absolutely adored a lot of the aesthetic of this film and the way they chose to take things, um, the lament configuration is objectively just fucking beautiful. Like, it's, like, handmade, like, fucking wood and gold, and it is gorgeous. Yes. It's a beautiful prop in all of its forms, and that only escalates as the franchise goes on and everything, but, like... It's beautiful and it's 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 iconic and you recognize it the minute you see it, right? And to have like something so powerful and a form so small is kind of great. And to have it to be a thing that again opens like physical and metaphorical. Yeah, doors, and it's another example of right? when you see the art of work. You know, mm-hmm. when you see craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. You know, because the original limit mm-hmm. configuration in the 1987 version was a physical box that they loaded with motors and springs. It is a a puzzle box that you have to kind of deftly open and desire leads the hands that open the box and call forth the high priest Leviathan who promise your deepest desire. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's like whatever you think that your deepest desire is may not Mm -hmm. be. um, That's what I love about the 2022 version. Listen, okay. (laughs) 
this is the other big thing that happened since we recorded last time recording now. I've seen you it. have finally seen it. And now it's gonna be real hard. Fucking, I have a lot of fucking feelings about it. About just that. <laughs> They're real good. In yeah, the yeah. original, you know, that lament is representative and opening up to the labyrinth, which is their higher dimensional plane. But in the 2022 version, it is just one of numerous emotions that are connected mm -hmm. with the puzzle box. It adds a really human quality to it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, what will you choose? What is most important to you? What is your deepest desire? Yeah, yeah. And, and you can think that one thing is, and that's almost like the demon of your own making, right? Is choosing wrong and realizing that you weren't really honest with yourself. You didn't look objectively, like you didn't actually feel all your feelings that you had because you shoved some in a box and you didn't want to fucking unpack it. And now you're dealing with the repercussions <laughs> of that because... <laughs> uh, yeah, listen, I love that bitch. Um, she could have gotten there so much faster. She just would have dealt with her bullshit, which is, you know, words to live by. <laughs> I kind of right? feel like when she goes to the second film and she becomes like a collector for the Leviathan, she has done that. She's she's chosen and she's liked it. She's actually like broken herself away from the ideal that she was raised on, that her parents told her, that society told her she needed to be. Yeah, yeah. The first the first film, the first Hellraiser, even though like, yeah, she's she's the quote unquote villain. It's it's her coming to terms with the fact that who she is, what she wants. And she even gets a little bit murky and confused along the way because she thinks what she wants is love with someone who is spontaneous and uh, selfish and does all these things that she's very like turned on by and intrigued by and the fact of the matter is is like no she doesn't want him she wants all of that for herself and once she realizes that is when it really starts to get fucking interesting right because frank is the reflection like the house for her she's mm -hmm. seeing in him the things that she wants to be and of course that's a false image of frank so frank is played by sean chapman it's a dual performance with oliver smith who plays skinless frank or frank the monster and he is her erstwhile lover, brother of Larry, who is just a complete scumbag. He is a sex tourist. He is a misogynist. He is violent. And he is resurrected in the attic of 55 Ludovico. The drip, goopy, like, lube that is, like, coming off of Frank's, like, hands and as he, like, outstretches to Julia. Like, you feel yeah. that. You feel it in your bones and you shiver because you do not want to touch Absolutely that. Absolutely <laughs> And he begs Julia to get more blood, to bring more bodies. And it gives her an opportunity to really examine who she is and what she wants. And she agrees to it. And so she spends the next half of the film just luring victims in, basically cruising, but for murder. Yeah. <laughs> Julia Cotton, cruising for murder. <laughs> cruising, but for murder. <laughs> uh, except, you know, she's bringing back her dead lover because she really needs a good Right, what a woman would do for a good fuck. <laughs> like, that's her fucking... Yeah, that's what she fucking wants. And she's like, you know what I could use? This is definitely, this is going to fix me. And it doesn't fucking fix her because she was she was there, but she was a little bit to the left. She didn't exactly <laughs> nail what exactly what her subconscious wanted. None of none of these men have any self-preservation. Here's the thing. 
Okay, let me set the fucking scene, though. You're at a bar. It's 2 p.m. on a Tuesday, and a woman like Julia Cotton is sitting beside you in her fucking sunglasses, hair fucking quaffed, looking like an absolute snack, and she's like, hey, want to go fuck? Would you not say yes? I I didn't say that I wouldn't do it, just that they have okay. no self-preservation. I'm like, we would all be mm-hmm. dead. Let's be fucking Oh, 100%. Real. Like, we're so That silly. is what it is. <laughs> we are the three bodies that brought Frank back to life. <laughs> like, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work on a lot of people, but it fucking works well, on Well, I think it's because, like, like we were saying, she was masking before, right? Everything was just a mask. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> on anyone else that presentation would look like a mask that would look false that is julia right that's like the first time she's Mm -hmm. being herself Mm -hmm. so you're like oh this is right actually for you yeah and the change as like when she starts to as she starts to commit her fucking like (laughs) smattering of murders when it pans over and it goes between like her uh just being with herself on the couch is the first time we really see her and she's wearing a red lip Mm -hmm. And you see that that change from the first time where, like, she's like, should I do this? Should I not? Whatever, whatever. And then the minute that guy has that change of face and is like, you're not going to fucking change your mind, are you? And she's like, no, I'm going to murder this man. Let's go. (laughs) The audacity. And just the, like, the, the, the change of space with their bodies because he's trying to get into her space. She comes around. Like, she tries to move around. He follows her. And then that happens. And she's like, all right fuck it, let's go. And of course, my other big thing with Julia is that her her choice of weapon <laughs> is yeah. a fucking hammer, so good. period. Just a hammer, um, which is something so blunt and violent and like intimate, like you have to be close to use it and all this, like she has to be right there. She gets blood mm-hmm. on her and she fucking likes it, which is well, like also- a whole other thing. <laughs> she looks very good covered in blood. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the mm-hmm. hammer is also like, it's coded as masculine, right? It's like, mm-hmm. if you're in like a very strict gender mm-hmm. role household, mm-hmm. yeah, a man exactly. is going to do like your DIY and really all does. the <laughs> tasks that require yeah. you to wield a hammer. And she's like, well, no, actually this is my job yeah. because I can do it. And you wouldn't have the fucking stomach for it. That's the that's that's the point. You wouldn't have the fucking stomach for yeah. it. Yeah. Like we that. just had Larry who couldn't fucking look at his own blood, like walk in and drip it on the floor, and she's like, "Bitch, I'm covered in someone else's." <laughs> <laughs> I love her so much, but I have such like, I have a weird affection for Larry in the same way that you'd have an affection for like a starved kitten. I'm like, oh baby. I was gonna say like a puppy. <laughs> I'm like, you're just a you're puppy just that puppy someone's man. kicked. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, right? Not he that does, sorry, but... He doesn't, but he doesn't really do anything wrong. He's just kind of there. He just is caught up in a lot of shit. <laughs> well, it's like he does nothing wrong, but he also really doesn't do anything right either. He sort of no, just does nothing. <laughs> Neutral man. I, but while... I fucking love Julia Cotton, and we won't talk about her for fucking ages. I know this. Uh, we, uh, I love Kirsty Cotton. Me too. <laughs> for me, she and having been going through that era of like watching a lot of horror movies, watching a lot of Final Girls, um, Kirsty showing up and saying "fuck," getting dirty and sweaty, 
and still doing her shit and getting shit done. That was incredible yeah. to me. That first shot of her when she's just walking along the pier in the big oversized leather jacket with the blue jeans. I was smitten with her. <laughs> she's so good. <laughs> she's so good. She's allowed to be a little bit of a slut. Um, <laughs> good for her. She's allowed, she to, she's allowed to get some. She's allowed to have emotions. And she's allowed to, like, fucking, like, she goes through this film. She fucking plays with the puzzle box. Like, that yeah. is, it is intention that it draws itself to people who have that inclination and intention. Like, she's not purely good or purely, like, evil. She has, like, these elements of maybe there's something else there, but also, like, she's still allowed to be the final girl yeah. and fucking handles her shit. I think she sort of comes from the same school of final girl as Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street. And yeah. Nancy is also very, like, gritty and has that sort of darkness inherent. And I think that's mm-hmm. a really fun dynamic to play with with the final girl, right? Because mm-hmm. we all sort of know the trope of, like, uh, you know, the innocent one makes it to the end because she's following right. the rules of horror. Screamed at all of that, mm-hmm. right? But yeah. I think it's fun to play with that a little bit and be like, well, no, you don't have to be, like, pitch perfect to be a final girl. You can just, like, have your shit together. Just yeah. get it together and you'll be fine. <laughs> also, the power move of her inviting a dude over, seducing him, and then making him sleep on the floor in front of her bed. Incredible. Obsessed. I was like, this woman. <laughs> She's like, thanks. You can stay here, but you're not sleeping here. <laughs> So while all this is going on, uh, and Julia has been murdering these men to complete Frank's resurrection, Larry has been confiding about his marital problems to Kirsty and asked her to check around on Julia. Kirsty, Ashley Lawrence, by the way, this is her first film. Kirsty swings by 55 Ludovico Place only yeah. to see Julia bringing another man home. And being who she is, when she hears the blood-curdling scream, she just rushes to break in and climbs the stairs to the attic. And right when she gets to the top of the final flight, Julia's latest victim flops out, mortally wounded, wildly disfigured, begs for help. And then Frank, (laughs) this is weird, Frank lets it linger. Like he's playing with his food. I feel like it's a little bit of, like, fucked up foreplay. Um, It's, like, a little bit of, like, voyeurism of, like, you're going to watch me do it. Like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Of, like, playing with someone's uh, emotions and fear and shock and... You know, that those ways that, like, it affects somebody. And he's like, fucking watch me do it. <laughs> yeah, he gets off on that. Yeah, And I, I love that little speech he gives her where she's like, this isn't happening. And he goes, uh, don't kid yourself, beautiful. Some things just have to be endured. Oh, oh it's fucking. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of layers to unpack with that. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I fucking love that line. You want it? Fucking have it. She's <laughs> tough. That's so good. <laughs> but they gave Kirsty a line so hard. It's great. And like, and she turned, like she turned. She's like, oh god, oh god, oh god. And then like that switch happens inside of her, and she gets fucking livid. Yeah, she's <laughs> someone who's heard that before. Yeah, it's fun as well because like it's sort of like what we were saying about Kirsty not quite fitting the mold of the final girl, right? Um, she gets to be angry in a way that final girls tend to only get at like the very mm. end, right? Mm-hmm. My first like things I'm thinking of is like Ripley and Aliens gets to like snap at the end there. Yeah. 
and like that it tends to be associated with when they get to curse because yeah. it's when they they snap and they get to move into a darker phase because the trauma has pushed them into mm-hmm. it um yeah, Ripley and Aliens gets to curse at the end. Sydney and Scream gets to curse at the yeah. end. Like, but it's always right at that end yeah. point. It's right when it's like, it's it's the killer or it's you, yeah. right? Always in the third but act. But gets... Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a third act curse to like free you from the shackles. She gets a second act Yeah, curse. she gets a second Sorry. act one. <laughs> but no, she gets in the second act to be like, yeah. right, well, you know what? Fuck you. I'm not taking this line down from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Everyone else might take it for a little while and then snap, but I'm going to snap now, actually. Yeah, I think I think one of the... Well, to add to that, one of the other things, too, is that we've visually talked about how she's dirty and she gets, like, bloody and she gets, like... I think the other thing, too, is visually, like, I guess ugly isn't the word for it, but it's, like, when women exist mm-hmm. in these films, they have to, like, cry pretty or, like, look good doing these terrible things. And she gets to, like, have these big facial like moments where Mm -hmm. it's like pushing into that like it's not pretty and she's sweaty and everything is terrible and she's allowed to exist there in that space reacting like a person would yeah because she gets to take up space yeah 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 you see that too just like visually because they give Mm -hmm. her that white t-shirt that like from mm-hmm. the time they go to Ludovico to spy on Julia, yes. where they let it get Best so fucking, nasty, and it, like it's it fucking it choice. It is. It really is. Anytime in these movies when oh, they employ white so in the good. wardrobe in Hellbound, they yeah. bring uh, Julia's character <laughs> oh, back, and she oh, is a skinless monster like Frank, and they oh, bring her out in this white he, suit. Oh, when she's a skinless monster <laughs> so good. in the white suit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I'm on the floor. <laughs> you're gone you're gone for the rest of the episode <laughs> one thing about it as a haunted house movie to me is that every time somebody goes mm-hmm. there they leave changed mm-hmm. when Kirsty first visits the house she leaves and she has the psychic dream when Larry enters the house he yeah. has the cut on his hand from the nail you know he has been per se penetrated by the house <laughs> I think it's great because well, like, it all kind of ties in with this aspect of like the haunted house and in Hellraiser is quite literal in that a lot of it is shot in a house right but the concept of the haunted house is a really like internal one right it kind of forces you to examine domestic spaces and what you constitute Mm. as domestic and the family and all of that but um there's also a lot of theories out there about the female body as a haunted house Mm -hmm. which is the real good shit um, <laughs> and for Kirsty, part of that probably comes into play with like this intergenerational trauma of like all these things that are passed mm-hmm. down and the linger in the family that you don't talk about. Mm-hmm. But for Julia, because I'm going to bring it back to her, obviously, what happens there is that the haunted house isn't about the monster under the floorboards. The haunted house that she lives in is the quite literally the history of domestic spaces right she doesn't want that so um there's an angela carter quote about it and it's really good and it's like she herself is a haunted house she does not possess herself her ancestors sometimes come and peer out of the windows of her eyes and that is very frightening oh so fucking right and it's like (laughs) i feel like that kind of would resonate with julia a lot right because it's this idea of all these ancestors who have have done the expected thing have 
had the family and the husband and passed it all down and that's been where it's been Mm -hmm. and she's like this is frightening to me because you are here and you're watching me and I don't want any of that Mm. so I think there's like a really cool like melding here of like how a haunted house can be multiple things all at once and yeah yeah it's a cool little intersection and Hellraiser actually being like if you look at it from another perspective the monster of domesticity of like yes you know <laughs> of societal well it's also like very <laughs> Edgar Allan Poe right like there's there's a yeah, heart right. under your floorboard and it's beating and it will not leave you alone I want to fucking talk about that <laughs> fucking practical effects shit it's so good that rocked my oh life. yeah <laughs> I distinctly remember that first time when the score swelled and blood is spilled and Frank begins to reconstitute himself on the floor of the attic um, and how visceral that is and how how beautiful and haunting and like distinct that is how wet and bloody and bones and what it would be like if a person like fucking like came back together after being torn to a thousand pieces um i fucking i love that scene it's i fucking so love that scene yeah image <laughs> animation who are the visual effects people on this movie you know they came from highlander and alien they really outdid themselves because it is like you said it's so tactile yeah well it's like a tangible thing right this idea of being able to reach out and quite literally touch what they have created and feel that sensation under your hands and know that it's real and as real as it can be on a a film set and i think part of your eye knows when it isn't when it's digital even when it's incredible work you're like well I can't hold this the same and be like, oh, this is gross and feels awful and I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's the imperfections of a man-made thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like you cannot create, you cannot recreate imperfection Mm -hmm. in a manufactured way. So when things get messy or things don't look perfect or, or happy accidents do happen because you're physically doing something and that goes across the board in a lot of art mediums, like there's something so magical about what happens in the act of creation when it's fucking physical and like you feel it and maybe you wouldn't have gotten there if you were trying to be perfect mm-hmm. about it or controlled almost you know what it's I mean? also very fun because it's like very destabilizing in a sense right yeah like, this looks real because in that sense it is real like you could reach out and touch it even if you absolutely would not want to um, but <laughs> the fact that you could reach out and touch it sort of destabilizes that idea of fiction and reality and you're like, mm, I don't I don't like that. Like, it, it will unsettle you a little bit even if you don't quite understand why. Hmm. I feel like there's also, like, I mean, this. have we talked about the fact that this story is being written by a gay man? Because I feel like that's very, like, prominent. Yeah. Yeah. Clive Barker was already an established and acclaimed writer He's one of those guys who, whatever he takes on, mm-hmm. he's just very good at it. He was a sex worker, too, in the 70s, mm-hmm. which is sort of where this notion first occurred to him to write a story of good and evil through mm-hmm. sexuality. I think, like, a lot of horror is sort of inherently like that, but it's fun to see what it looks like when it's constructed with that in mind, rather than it being, like, a sublimated mm-hmm. thing that shows up. I think that's really where... Mm-hmm. A lot of Hellraiser really shines is like this feels deliberate rather than, hey, you're repressing something real mm. bad and stumbled mm. into something, right? And I think in a way that that's what made it seem so 
risque yeah. to viewers, right? Yeah. Because this was a time at which a lot more of queer culture was becoming visible. Yeah. And mm -hmm. notions around the idea of BDSM mm -hmm. or suspension yeah. play and leather play was no longer just within the nichest of circles. Yeah. And I feel like all of that played into how audiences perceived it. Because once you watch it, like you're told growing up is mm -hmm. the scariest thing, all this gore and viscera. But most of the movie is a family yeah. drama. <laughs> Yeah. And so what you're seeing that reaction to is further extrapolations of sexuality and passions mm -hmm. and dark turns on love. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like the horror really is like the heteronormative family structure, right? It's it's about being stuck in that. And sure, sometimes liberation is messy and bloody mm. and not what people want from you, but there can be power in it and I think that's why it's really interesting that everyone in Hellraiser like occupies those grey spaces like we were saying earlier about this idea of like the dual sides of coins or being neither demon nor angel something in between or just different things to different people I think that's why it's really interesting to like situate it at that sort of grey space and also a sort of liminal non-Euclidean space like all of these spaces come together to be Something that I think is very deliberately ambiguous, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's something that you see a lot of in uh, uh, queer media and queer made things across the board. I mean, I think that horror, why it appealed to me in general was because it was one of those spaces where we were allowed to be seen. We were allowed to be there. We were allowed to make the art that we were able to make. And there were you were allowed to say things that you couldn't say other places because you had those higher ratings and because not many people who were critics were paying attention to them and you could get away with stuff. Stella. <laughs> and it's like I, I, one of the first places that I could see myself and see myself in the monster and like, you know, kind of what does that mean? And what are we doing here? Mm -hmm. And I was really, I was really drawn to horror for those reasons. It's no coincidence that the end of the film is the destruction of the mm -hmm. family unit yeah and like the house too even though the house comes back mm -hmm. in hellbound the house crashes down yeah. around kirsty and leaves her without a father and so now she is pushed out as well <laughs> from that typical domesticity that she might yeah, have otherwise and I mean, like, we come into that with. and julia is her stepmom we know that her birth mother has already died um, and then she has a connection with Larry and the implication that Frank and Kirsty kind of know each other, but Kirsty doesn't really seem into whatever kind of relationship yeah. they had. But Frank is predatory. <laughs> He's looking at her with lust, which is fucked up on many levels. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so she already is very, very like isolated from having any kind of like support system. And then just, yeah, she hasn't, she has nothing at the end there, but Steve and a dragon. <laughs> The way that she acts, it gives the impression that her mother died after being a more pivotal part of her life. Mm -hmm. It seems like there's an attachment there that is is still haunting mm -hmm. both Larry and Kirsty. Yeah. I think about that fucked up dream sequence, right? After she goes to the party, after Kirsty goes to the party, she brings Steve back home. They fuck. She puts him in the floor like a dog. <laughs> Maybe there is a little Dom yeah. in her too. Good for, Good for her. her. <laughs> uh, and then she has this dream where she is standing in a room filled with smoke and floating feathers. 
There's a baby yeah. crying and two candelabras frame a slab with a body covered in a sheet. Blood starts pouring down from the head. The body sits up and the sheet falls off and it's this bloody massacred man. I, mean, I assume that is to be a dead Larry because it's like a warning. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that she has this while dealing with this maternal paternal conflict. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that dream sequence is one of the better representations of a dream sequence. You kind of uh, click in right away that she's definitely dreaming and there's something weird and mm -hmm. it feels very weird at you. Like when you're having a disjointed like uh, dream of your own like late at night, you're like, I don't know what all these things came from. But there's definitely something weird. <laughs> there's definitely something I'm not going <laughs> to unpack. Love yeah. to see it. Yeah. The wild thing is that in the script, it's not like mentioned as a baby. Like the baby was added post, like the baby screams, mm -hmm. you know, the whales yeah. and stuff, which I find very interesting. Yeah. And it just sort of reinforces this like fear of domestic as a sort of underscoring theme that keeps circling back, right? Like this mm -hmm. fear that almost like you're locked into something that you have no say in. Because I think a lot of it comes down to agency. So if the event configuration is open by desire, that it only stands to reason that, you know, the people with desires that are perhaps out of step with the expected roles they're put in are going to be more drawn to it. Um, and I think it makes for a really interesting way to construct, like, the monster and monstrosity in this film, because the monster's a really hard figure because it can be something that is scary. It should be something that is scary, but for the right people, it should also be something that is important and signifying for some reason and in Hellraiser for a lot of the time that is someone who has a desire whether that be in the sense of sexuality or how you want to construct your life it has to be out of step with the sort of cultural zeitgeist if you want to put it that way but that makes me sound pretentious so I won't. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, th do you think that also it kind of lends itself to, like, messy rebirth? Like, the idea of, like, a baby's scream, yeah, you know for what sure. I mean? Of, like, reinventing yourself in this very, like, visceral, gory, messy way. And, like, because, I mean, that's literally how the Cenobites are yeah. right? Yeah, well, like, I did, I did my master's thesis on the monster. I have opinions <laughs> on things to say about monsters. Yes! <laughs> but there's, again, there's another academic, uh, Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, who talks a lot about, like, how you build a monster and quite literally, like, how you make one. And he says that a monster should always signify something other than itself. It is always a displacement. It always inhabits the gap between the time of upheaval that created it and the moment into which it is received to be born again. So, like... For Cohen, quite literally, like a monster is about rebirth, mm -hmm. whether that is rebirth of someone's identity in a literal sense, or rebirth of a cultural fear that produced that monster. Like, yeah, I think rebirth definitely circles up a lot of the time in horror movies and specifically in Hellraiser. It's also like, not to get into Hellbound, because we don't want to go too far off the beaten too track. Too far. <laughs> as if we've been anywhere on the beaten track. <laughs> But um, it's the question again of like knowing what Julia becomes in Hellbound. It's like, okay, well, when did she become a monster, if you want to call it that? Is it when she makes that physical transformation or is it the moment she picks up that hammer and kills for the first time? Where is the line of monstrosity and what do you consider it? Especially in like mm. horror where you are dealing with quite often, like not literal because it's fiction, but 
physical physical <laughs> monsters that are markedly sure. monstrous, right? You can look at them and you can tell they are monstrous yeah. and in the way that you would look at like Frank and be like, That's a monster. Um you're not gonna look at <laughs> Julia and her power suit and her pretty earrings and be like, That's a monster like but it's there. Yeah, but she's the big bad wolf. She's the wolf. Yeah. yeah. So and you know, that makes me think about the quote unquote derelict. Um I mean, yeah. film is often not quite kind no. to people who experience houselessness, yeah. mental illness, yeah. God forbid, both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Kirsty is stopped by yeah. this unhoused person. Yes. And so this is Frank Baker. And the best read that I've gotten on this is that this character is a figment yeah. mm. not necessarily like Kirstie's imagination but it's like yep. a, a mm-hmm. person who is in those margins right they're in the margins just like the engineer is in the margins and so like this is a representative or a, a harbinger of leviathan which i think would scan if we take the idea that once somebody is in the house that that house has touched them, yeah. the Cenobite, that labyrinth, yeah. that Leviathan yeah, yeah, yeah. has touched them. Yeah, that's them. what I was going to say. The fact that it is positioned as someone who is houseless is really interesting considering how much we've spoken about the haunted house and what happens when the domestic sphere becomes a site of horror, right? And to position it in that sort of dichotomy of you're houseless or your house, but you're still haunted in some way, right? There's a lot mm. there that... I don't know. It's that thing of like, there's something there that my brain is like, ooh, ooh, there's something ticking away, but I can't reach yeah, it. There is. But yeah, I think it's really interesting that it puts them in such like a stark dichotomy, right? Of they're on opposing sides, but there's still this shared struggle in a sense. And perhaps those fears are sort of cross cultural and cross, cross these dichotomies. Oh, uh, what, one thing I remembered I was going to say when we were talking about, like, uh, it runs in the family and the kind of, like, uh, intergenerational shit and everything of how we get that one insight into Larry when he's actually watching the boxing match and he gets very into it and he's actually, like, he is something that we don't see in him a lot where he mm-hmm. his body language becomes violent and becomes very, like, alert and how much of that is there? I wonder if we had given him the puzzle box, would he have opened it the same as Kirsty and Frank, the two other people who have fucking like already done it? You know what I mean? I think he would have. I think he would have too. Yeah. I think it would have taken him a lot longer because I think he would have had to. A, because I don't think he's as clever, right? Not to shave this poor man who didn't ask for it. But he's not that smart, and that's okay. Um, but also because I think it would have had to have pushed him to frustration before yeah. he could have unlocked that, that part passion. of himself. Yeah. One of them's a creep, and one of them's ineffectual. You're official with you. Get rid of them. The Cotton Brothers. <laughs> I'd rather not! <laughs> Get rid of them. Get rid of them. Uh, that's so embarrassing for Larry. <laughs> Literally though, <laughs> you li- like you go through the whole film. You're like, oh, Larry, oh, Larry, oh, Larry, that's so embarrassing for you. Get it together. Um, how do we feel about um, the culmination of everything? In that uh, everything isn't happening fast enough, and Frank literally wears Larry's skin, yeah, in order to fuck Julia. <laughs> it's unhinged. Right? 
the the difference and the, it, it invites the comparison of earlier when she was trying to seduce Larry and have sex with Larry in order to quote unquote save him and then pretty much parallel those like kind of shots where she is now fucking Frank in Larry's skin yeah and how different that is and how it works for both of them <laughs> which invites another thing of Frank being comfortable in his brother's skin playing dress up in some yeah. kind of way, you know? And it's, it's a read of possession yes. as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because, yes, he kills his brother and takes his skin. But what does he do? He takes over Larry's life. Uh, he takes Larry's wife. He's pretending he tries to be Larry to take a little Larry's bit. Body. He does it yeah. with Karstay. And he looks like he's having fun. For sure. <laughs> it's role playing. <laughs> it's a really intense scene. And no one's safe for it, and they really should have done it a long time ago. No one has a safe <laughs> No one has yeah, a safe yeah. They absolutely should. It's all gone too far. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is a possession in that sense. But it also goes back to like Larry in that sense, quite literally becomes a haunted body, right? Mm-hmm. It's, I remembered what I wanted to say. It's uh, Carmen Maria Machado, who has done some incredible stuff, right? did a short story collection called Her Body and Other Parties, which mm-hmm. is so good. And a sort of autobiographical memoir called In the Dream House, where a lot of these themes of bodies as haunted comes up. And she got asked about it, like, do you think like the body is a source of horror? And her answer was, yeah, of course it is. Like, bodies are terrifying, they're powerful and fragile, bloody and imperfect, uncanny, impressionable vehicles that carry our minds from birth until death, and they are inherently haunted. A haunting is a kind of impression, a lingering effect from a physical act, like a shoe print or a cloud of perfume left in the air. In the same way, our bodies carry trauma and choices of our ancestors. Our DNA is blueprints of the past. So fucking metal. Right. Quite literally, the hauntology of ourselves. Yeah. yeah, it's a hauntology of the self. Mm-hmm. And we've kind of been like, not talking around it, because I think there's a lot in Hellraiser, but I think the fact that it is a family drama means that it is very much about being haunted by your past, even when it doesn't necessarily come up, right? We don't mm-hmm. need to know all the details to know these people have a lot of baggage that they are carrying with them into this house Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. house is taking advantage of it because there's things living in it that need it Mm -hmm. yeah i i just think it's so good it's so fucking good and you see that baggage carry through on these characters larry and julia come to live in 55 ludovico this is like his hell mary attempt right like he's got a good job he now has a new house it's away from all Mm -hmm. their troubles it's never going to be enough to save it because it was already dead on arrival. But he's still trying to carry that to the finish line. Mm-hmm. Kirsty, mm-hmm. she brings in the insecurity of attachments to any kind of mother figure. And then she's yeah. incredibly attached to her dad to the point of like, after all this happens, she runs over in the middle of the night to make sure he's okay. He's not. He's dead. <laughs> but she loves him so Larry much Cotton that found dead. <laughs> she dismisses the other clues that she sees to give him a great big hug, to put herself in that vulnerable position. Yeah. How wild is it the first time that, like, you can't, like, they, they do a good job of in that, like, first 
like moment of seeing him like you know something's off you know he's probably sweaty from like fucking but how, how good they are where they show his eyes and they're brown instead of those beautiful baby blue you know what I mean mm-hmm. and they've changed and you notice that first and you're like wait something's weird here and it, like the first time you watch it and then this like clearly you go oh like shit's real wrong um real fast yeah. <laughs> but like well, it's, yeah and they yeah. do that beautiful poppy yes. eye yeah that's one of those uh, things yes. that Andrew Robinson yes. did, I think, really added to Gorgeous. the role. Yeah. I love Andrew Robinson yeah. so much. I think the other concept that runs through not just this film, but the entire, you know, <laughs> I'll say the entire franchise, but I mean, like, the good yeah. ones. Is the concept of enough and what is enough and what does that mean? And the Cenobites are tied into pleasure and pain and these upper extensions of both of those. And then you have these people who are questing for something, but they don't know what it is and they haven't reached it yet. And that's what drives them to seek out eventually. What are these like other beings and things like that in the upper extensions. And like to sort of co-opt religious language, right? It is quite literally this, Mm -hmm. the search for an ascendance, a a rapture of some kind Mm -hmm. of a feeling that is so beyond what you get to feel in the everyday that it will lift you to a higher plane. And Mm -hmm. for, for Julia in particular, a lot of that is tied up in this dual notion of pleasure and pain and this dual notion of mm-hmm. the sort of sexual liberation she gets, but also in the dominant nature of it. That, for her, is rapturous. That is, she's never had that. And I think it's very easy to get lost in that. And I think that's almost exactly what mm-hmm. happened, right? She loses herself to that feeling and yeah. for all it helps her ascend at what cost, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, because Frank is someone who's had all of that and it's mm-hmm. numbed him to anything that's awe-inspiring, anything that gives that rapturous yeah. feeling, mm-hmm. which is why he says after they fuck on the wedding dress, mm-hmm. like, nothing's ever enough. He keeps pushing. You know this man yeah. is unrepentant in everything he does. He will try anything. Yeah. And eventually He's gone to the upper extremes far. of selfishness in order to try and fucking find something. He is such a purely selfish being that when Julia agrees to kill people for him, all she gets is like this vaguely affirmative uh-huh. look. And two fucking fingers in the mouth. And that's it. <laughs> mm-hmm. No. And that's not enough. Yeah. yeah which is true. <laughs> that's true. It's just so yeah, funny. Fucking incredible. Yeah, and just the way, like, clearly, you know, we as the audience are watching this whole thing, and we know that Frank isn't going to fucking, like, take her with him anywhere. Um, no. So when the turn he comes, doesn't give yeah, a shit. he doesn't give a shit. So when the turn comes, we already know it's coming, but she, and this is like her last kind of straw or attachment to, like, maybe he will. And then he's like, ah, no. And then he fucking, like, <laughs> when he accidentally stabs her and then uses her life force to kind <sighs> of re power himself to go fight Kirsty. like it's very clear that like to everybody involved that this was never about you babe <laughs> no no and it's very interesting when we see him in the first half mm-hmm. of the movie where he has to be vulnerable yeah. where he has to try to plead mm-hmm. and use his tactics that just don't play no. as well yeah. like he's lost his power and you see where yeah. Julia's it's all manipulation and he's trying to fucking yeah he he still thinks he's like that hot little stud <laughs> who can charm his way out of anything and say mm-hmm. some fucked up shit and it's like no it's not working <laughs> not working bad. but I find Larry playing Frank so really good. really so good. good I think Andrew Robinson does such a phenomenal mm-hmm. job of that Kirsty fine when she is in such a state 
that she thinks she's going to have to go with the mm-hmm. Cenobites because Larry or mm-hmm. because Frank is dead, right? When they have tricked her into yeah. thinking that Frank is dead, and she finally realizes that that's not yeah. her father, and she scratches some of the mm-hmm. skin off because it's so weak. He gives that great line when he pops the flick knife, and it's just so much for the cat. Yeah, and yeah, so good. It's so good. <laughs> I think, in particular, like Andrew Robinson really excels when he gets the range to play with. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying about, because he played Larry as Loki, and now as Frank as Larry, he has like the space to work with. He does so well in like working up and down that range and that register, and it is so so fascinating to watch. I think his his body language when he he acts is just so good. I love watching him. He really inhabits characters in ways and in ways that really add to it. Like when Frank is playing Larry, it's like he's acting the same way but just wrong enough that you're like something's something's not right. Like you're saying about the the eyes being different. Mm-hmm. And it makes a very like uncanny valley, right? You're like, mm-hmm, something's wrong and I don't know what. And then that reveal happens. You're like, I know what, I know what, and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that they do a skin reveal yes. in both movies. Yes. Shit. Yes. <laughs> so good. The Yeah, the idea of your body is not your own and that you can mm-hmm. command others and who is in control and things like that. Like, it raises a lot of interesting uh, questions and conversations to be had. Um, and, and again, with the Frank and Larry's body and cut the cat and mouse shit, you see that this was all just foreplay to him. Like, this is all mm-hmm. kind of sexually charged, and this was just fun. This was this was a fun chase that would eventually culminate in a climax that is murder, um, you know, just as well as it would, like, a fucking, like, orgasm. <laughs> yeah. But, like, and, it's, like all, it's just With a knife, quite literally for him, penetrative yeah. murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which, to yeah, Julia. Shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot to unpack. Yes, I wanted to talk about the the... Frank coming back to composition and especially and it becomes less the more constituted he becomes but how he is weak and vulnerable and he's like don't look at me don't look at me I'm unfinished don't look at me like mm-hmm. repeatedly to her so he like wants yeah. her to hear his voice but like not to associate him with being someone who is weaker in a physical capacity or looks like he does and things like that because it would shatter the image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. wants to use his voice to control Seduce him. her, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. But he doesn't want to be associated, like you're saying there, yeah. with this, this thing he yeah. views as pathetic. And yeah, and how, how relatable that is to be like, I, I feel unfinished and therefore I don't want to be witnessed. Right? Oh, that's real. Yeah. That's a real <laughs> <laughs> Something a little gender going on in there, I guess. <laughs> yeah. They... In a way, they each relate to their gender mm-hmm. in specific mm-hmm. ways mm-hmm. that aren't queer, but you you see the ways that they are subverting are the expectations there. of their yeah. gender. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's not queer, but there's like a little something, a little something happening. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, Which like she's fucking these space. two brothers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, like, yeah. Frank had a collection of things. He experimented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he didn't go there. He fucking did. He definitely did. <laughs> It's very neat that Kirsty is able to deliver him without needing to overpower him. Yes. I mean, it's mm-hmm. really just that 
she's able to see around Frank's vulnerabilities. He has plenty of them. They're mm-hmm. just all covered up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she leads yep. him into a trap. Yeah. Yeah. She she gets him to admit, which is what she needed. She's like, I don't need to fucking fight this dude. I need him to get to admit that he's fucking Frank. And they take him away. And then when the Cenobites are like, no, 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 actually, we want you to. That was a fucking, listen, we were playing a game, too. She proceeds to resolve the puzzle box to send them all so back. so fast. Like, she solved yeah. that puzzle so box faster than Frank. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good which you know her. she did it the first time. And I think, I forget if it's elaborated in the Hellbound Heart. Um, I think it is because it takes him a long time to do it. And he's, like, constantly, like, masturbating and trying to, like, fucking do the puzzle box at the same time. <laughs> which... Maybe we shouldn't, like, change the order of events there, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Maybe we focus on one thing, Frank, but hey, one thing I don't criticize. <laughs> but, like, yeah. I do not want, regardless Correct. of whether that man is fucking just skin and bone or nerves, I do not want his hands anywhere fucking near me. <laughs> me neither. No. His fingernails Absolutely are dirty as hell. <laughs> so the Cenobites pull Frank to hell. They, they chain mm-hmm. him up. Yeah. And he gets that mm-hmm. great line that Andy Robinson mm-hmm. improv, which is good instead Jesus of fuck wept. you, it's Jesus wept. Oh, uh, so good. That tongue lick. Mm-hmm. It's such yeah. good work. Yeah. This is what I mean. Like, he's so physical that I'm like, oh, yeah. I felt that. And I wish I hadn't, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. It's that really gritty, dirty of, oh, you got me. Yeah, and I'm like, kind of oh. hot. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want, I don't want them to have yeah. gone if this is what he's going to do with it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Well done, man. You've made it weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then they give the impression that they're going to take her. She mm-hmm. fights back. She solves that puzzle, rips it out of Julia's hands, sends all the various Cenobites away through each side of the puzzle she finishes. It's fucking hilarious when the engineer pops back in. Ooh, ooh. But at one point, <laughs> Steve tries to get the box. From Kirsty, and she slaps the shit out of him. Like, get the fuck away. Because he's trying to help, but he's so ineffective. She's like, I know you're not going to help. I'm smarter than you. I made you sleep on the floor. Please go away. (laughs) That's just the thing. Like, realistically, he's not going to be helpful. Like, she does not need his help in this moment. Go away. (laughs) I love a queen who knows what she's on about. I also love that she's not afraid. Like, she was not afraid to tell him, no, I'm smarter than you. Fuck off. Like, that's what she does. Like, that's what she does. She's like, I know better than you. I did this once. Please go away. You're making it worse. (laughs) And then they they get out with the box. They take it Mm -hmm. to a lot and they burn it. Which is hilarious because it's a metal box. That's not how that works. Not how that works. She's like the wood will. (laughs) Look, she used up so much brain space solving this thing twice. I think we can allow it. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna get. I'm gonna give her. I'm gonna give her that. Listen, she just wanted to be gone. (laughs) She throws the box in the fucking fire. Like that'll help. Yeah. Instead, and then the uh, the derelict or the unhoused man walks up. Stands in the fire, catches himself on fire, and turns into this puppeteering monstrosity <laughs> of a dragon. I love it. I also love it. It's an amazing puppet. I believe what they did was they mm-hmm. got two plastic skeletons and fused yeah. those together for the spine, and then they got like yeah. a taper head and then yes. a couple of ibex yep. horns, and they built up this dragon. And they were like, eh? And they're like, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I yeah. love it. I think it looks great. It pulls it off, too, because they don't give us the flying scene with that. Yeah. They give the perspective of it flying away. Mm-hmm. And as they pull and they're mm-hmm. watching this bone dragon ride into the sky, we go back into that same opening shot where it zooms out to mm-hmm. the lament configuration on a table. 
in that super racist market. It's the fact that it's mm-hmm. bookended. Like, you're like, God you damn, twice. We you did it twice. <laughs> can, we not, can we not just chop those scenes off? The rest is like, great. Just, we don't need those. I don't need context. Yeah, we we talked we were talking a little bit how we dug the cyclical nature of it cannot not exist. You cannot create nor destroy. It simply is. Mm-hmm. Um, fucking hated the racist depiction of Orientalism and all of yeah, that business. It's real so- wrong. <laughs> bad. It's real bad. I mean, I'm a sucker for a story that there is no end or beginning. There is no good or evil. There simply mm-hmm. is. And what this is is that it won't stop it won't start it's just this will keep going around and around and there will always be people who are interested in it and there will always be things to feed yeah there'll always be people Leviathan. who aren't satisfied <laughs> yeah yeah and where does that lead us yeah i think there's definitely like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i've never thought about it until you're talking right there about being satisfied and how there will always be people who aren't satisfied with what they have right but I think there's definitely a scope for reading, maybe not Hellraiser specifically, but this concept of the lament configuration and this cycle as something that would really flourish in hyper-capitalist systems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that it doesn't have to be like a weird psychosexual thing. It should, right? It usually is. It should. But there is always going to be scope, especially in capitalism, for greed and people who mm-hmm. are never satisfied and cannot stop mm-hmm. when they've started to possess things, right? It's about ownership and it's about power and mm. and a society that really prioritises that in terms of wealth and circumstances like that, I think that would actually be a really interesting take to go on. There's something there. Well, when you think about collector culture, yeah. when you think about mm. the scarcity mindset of these very niche hobbies and obsessions, yeah, I think that it's, it's a great way that you could take that. I mean, when we see in Hellbound, not to do too much of that, we're going to talk about <laughs> Hellbound because we're here. We'll, we'll, we'll still do to. an episode on yeah. Hellbound. <laughs> but in Hellbound, Dr. Chenard is someone who really collects it. He's got three puzzle boxes. Mm. Which are clearly made from like three different people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he has all these archives and etchings of the lament configuration of notes and records from people who witnessed the Cenobites or known people who, who have sought after it. Uh, so I, I think that that would be really interesting to mm-hmm. explore, kind of like you were saying, in a hyper-capitalist mm-hmm. perspective. Yeah, I yeah. think there's definitely a scope for it. Like, it's way more of an undertone compared to everything else right but there's space Mm -hmm. for it i think and in a movie like this that is doing so much i think there's there's definitely space for alternate readings yeah that's why i mean that's why i love the new one so much is because it takes that idea of what does obsession look for different people and what is that one is a collector and then there is another and it looks at how impulsivity and addiction can also feed into those things and how that complicates decision making and things like that. So speaking of alternate readings, I want to kind of like test the waters here and and get y'all's opinion on something. So one of the things in Hellbound Heart that stands out to me is that Kirsty is in love with Rory, who is is Larry, (laughs) right? Uh She is in love with Larry. And then they take this character and make her keep the same place in the narrative, but they make her his daughter. Mm -hmm. And I think there are places 
where I still see that reflection of the character. And considering how the film does reach its climax with Frank and Larry's skin and that metaphor mm-hmm. of incest through the father, I wanted to see what your takes were and what, like, what your thoughts on were with Kirstie and her relationship with Larry. Yeah, sure. Do you want to go first? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to propose something a little left field, I think. Well, I don't think it's that left field. I think it's probably quite common. We just haven't touched on it. <laughs> I think that there is a strong case to be made for the fact that Kirsty is Frank's daughter. Mm. That this affair was occurring long before and this situation has come up before. Hmm, that's um, very interesting. That this is a pattern for Frank. I kind of love that. Like, this is a... Yeah, like... As much as it's an intergenerational trauma, it's Mm -hmm. also very specifically Frank carrying it through all the time. Um, And I think there's shades of that. And when you, I think when you looked at it in that way, it changes the notion of this Frank and Larry's skin because then it becomes a that's so barrier that so that Frank become like Larry's skin becomes a barrier and that doesn't negate the incest. It becomes a bar. <laughs> it becomes a barrier of some kind from that direct incest, but it has to be done by breaking through these social taboos of, you know, murdering and skinning people, which are pretty big mm-hmm. ones, you know. Yeah, and that and that gives a whole context to the yearning of Larry, right? Is that he's questing mm-hmm. and he's trying to attach, and maybe he knows or he doesn't know, or part of his mind knows, but he hasn't made that very big dissection and realization yet of being like, I, mm-hmm. I wish that you were mine, or I think of you as mine, or whatever, you know, like he raised her and all of that. But, but having that, yeah, that's so interesting. I'm fucking fascinated by that. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of love that. Yeah. I think it would be interesting. And setting up that pattern of Frank is like, I'm going to take and take and take and take. And I can do that. Well, like, it's the the pinnacle of his selfishness to the nth degree, right? He's going to... And specifically with Larry, because like we said, he thinks Larry is pathetic. And it's like, hey, I can take your wife. I can take your new wife. I can take your child. I can take your whole life if you Mm -hmm. let me... And you will because you're pathetic. And Larry then being the like dichotomy of that, of being like, well, at least I'm not as bad as you. Maybe I'm not good, but I'm not Frank. You know what I mean? And I feel like that probably is how he operated yeah. in his life. Oh, for sure. With like his own like familial relationships of being like, I may have done something bad, but it definitely wasn't bad as Frank, anything Frank has done. <laughs> and that's right. not and when, good. when he wins Julia's yeah. hand, like, yeah. he probably thinks that's the best He's thing that's won. ever happened in his life. He's won. Marrying yeah. Julia Cotton as wedding. <laughs> That's why he's so persistent in Mm -hmm. pursuing this Mm -hmm. as far as he can, because he doesn't want to lose another thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's my take. Good. Fucking. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. I think when it changed relationship, it just became a different type of love. It went from like intimate, physical, yearny kind of love to kind of a platonic, like at least between between for Kirsty mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in that way. And I think that like it's still kind of there, but it is. It's just it's 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 this desperation to try and keep this relationship a thing because they're what they have and trying to salvage mm-hmm. that. And sometimes that can come across in weird ways when we're trying desperately to keep something going. Why don't we circle around? We get a question. Oh, hell yeah. Love a question. Yay! <laughs> um, 
I love I love horror movies. I love, I love to be scared. Me too. I think at least for me, I you know, for me personally, like I am a person who I have a lot of nightmares and I have a lot of trouble sleeping and there is a weird comfort mm-hmm. in like an existing monster that you can deal with that actually fucking helps me sleep. Right. Well, there's a controlled environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So you're you're engaging all of the like levels of fear and chemicals in your brain and then by the time you actually experience that like they're depleted because you've watched a fucking horror <laughs> Anyway, I'm weird. It's cool. (laughs) My current favorite genre of tweet is the um, bitches who put on their comfort movie and then it's this and then just four screen caps from the most unhinged horror movie. Yes! Oh my god! I got that sent to me by like ten people. Um, (laughs) I sent it it to Bex the other day, but I was like, that's it. I I sent it, I was like, I've got, I beat TikTok. TikTok has figured out exactly who I am as a person and it's somehow getting me this incredibly niche fucking american mary meme and there's i swear to god there's only one that like exists on the internet and it found me and i was like that's it i'm done we've done it we've done it everybody go home (laughs) we've won the algorithm well done because that's my fucking comfort movie which is something We had a question from Tao. It says, Howdy, I found this podcast and it's illustrious host from the Cerebro podcast. Shout out Cerebro. You should absolutely go listen to Connor and all of his amazing guests. Uh, Continuing, Hellraiser being the topic already speaks to its massive influence on horror culture, but what are your favorite works or characters that have been inspired by Hellraiser? Best regards, Tao. So for me, I said this last Mm -hmm. time. Yeah. Tell me I'm worthless. I'm always saying this. Tell me I'm People are into that. Yeah. We're supportive in this. Allison Rumford's Tell Me I'm Worthless. It's out by Tor Books. And it's a fascinating kind of, I wouldn't call it a spiritual successor, but if you want something that pulls from that British tradition of haunted house stories while also engaging with issues of sexuality and gender and also in its case fascism Mm -hmm. certainly something we're all having (laughs) to contend with one of my favorite books of the year so far and i cannot recommend it enough everybody can go and check that out but maybe Dark City as well was another answer I would give to that. What about you all? Not to be that guy who's saying, oh, yeah, last time. Um, but uh, one of the things that dawned on me when we were, we were kind of, you know, figuring this stuff out is um, uh, it's not even very, ex- like, Hillary's are, isn't very extreme. I guess, I mean, bodies are being ripped apart. Whatever, you know, casual. <laughs> it has a bigger reputation yeah, than it actually yeah. deserves in that yeah. area. <laughs> a little extreme. But, you know, kind of delving into the more body horror and the things yeah. like that, we brought up Martyrs. Um, you remember that vivid yeah. and, like, visual at the end with the fucking, like, splayed? You know what I mean? I feel like mm-hmm. maybe that's a good one. I think, honestly, you start to see the imagery of Hellraiser start to, like, sort of trickle down into other types of horror. You saying that about Martyrs made me think of... Um, Midsommar and mm-hmm. that scene where he like um, Danny goes into the barn and his back mm-hmm. is splayed open and the angel Ooh. wings and like would that happen if that wasn't for Hellraiser right because that was a historical practice yeah Hannibal's and, yeah, another Hannibal. one yeah there's a there's a lot of stuff in Hannibal that ended up I feel like there's a lot of stuff in yeah. NBC Hannibal, <laughs> NBC Hannibal. But, um, <laughs> the one that yeah. NBC Hannibal yeah. it's full yeah. legal title um, <laughs> 
the one I thought of though was the one where they cut open the man's mm-hmm. throat and make a cello from his yes. vocal cords. Yes. Yes. That's the female yes. superbite, right? That comes from that. Uh I'm gonna I've been very good and not mentioned it at all so far, so it's time it's time for um Bex talks about Star Trek Corner. Um, Bex talks about Star Trek the, Corner. That's it. That's the theme. Um, the Borg to me are very inherently yeah. hellraisery. There's a mm-hmm. little. There's something in there about this idea of wouldn't it be easier to just give up to your desires and let something else rule those decisions for you? Wouldn't it be easier? if something took you by the hand and guided you through everything because you wanted that. And there's a little bit of that in the Borg. There's a little bit of the visual similarities. The Borg queen especially is very Cenobite with her whole deal. Mm-hmm. And I love that for her, quite frankly. She looks great. <laughs> but yeah, I love the Borg. Love a Borg queen. <laughs> very Julia Cotton of them. The, the Borg always take it from me. They're just a lot of fun. And I like Star Trek a lot. And also Andrew Robinson was in Star Trek. And therefore it's doubly relevant. <laughs> Love you, Garrick. My lizard king. He's just a tailor. He's <laughs> <laughs> just a simple, a simple tailor. A simple gay tailor. Those stereotypes don't exist anymore. But that's all he is. Okay, so I feel like this is probably a good time to start wrapping it up. <laughs> Any last thoughts on Hellraiser, y'all? What a what a good time. <laughs> find a buddy. If you're into horror, find a buddy and do a double feature of Hell, Hellraiser and Hellbound. Just do them in the middle of the night and have a good time if you haven't seen them before. If you have, find somebody that you love and just watch Hellraiser. <laughs> Absolutely. It's so good. It's so um, good. Um, Julia yeah, Cotton did yeah. nothing wrong. That is my official stance. <laughs> and I, su- yeah. even if she had, it would be fine because we support women's rights and women's wrongs. Yes. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that I can make her worse. Like, you, Julia doesn't, almost even doesn't apply to it because she's like, I'll make myself well, worse. Fuck here's you. Here's the thing. <laughs> I could not fix Julia Cotton. She could make me worse, and I would thank her for it. Mm-hmm. And you know what? That's, you know, feminism. That is. That's allyship. All right. Well, Valentine, thank you for being our first repeat guest. <laughs> thank you. I, I hope I did okay for y'all on an opening I just I just like talking about horror stuff and I want to watch movies with y'all at the end. You did great. <laughs> Please be my friend. <laughs> yeah. So the next couple of episodes that we have coming up, we will be talking about 1983's Sleepaway Camp with Lila Sturges. We will be talking about 1992's Bram Stoker's Dracula with Gretchen Felker Martin. And we will be talking about the 2011 Fright Night remake with Zoe Tennell. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you all stay tuned. Please send your questions to outtogetyoupodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at outtogetyoupod. Music from today's episode was brought to you by friend of the pod, Nathan Blevins. But until then, listeners, we'll see you before you see us. Oh, fuck yeah. Hell yeah.